The Happy Pair podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot. Use the code HAPPYPAIR20 to get a 20% off Vivo Barefoot shoes, vivobarefoot.com. Today's guest is the wonderful Dr. Kim Williams. He's a renowned cardiologist and former president of the American College of Cardiology. He was educated at the University of Chicago. And Dr. Williams himself, he's been a leading voice in cardiovascular health. He's an advocate for plant-based nutrition and a pioneer in preventative cardiology. He's been plant-based since 2003, so over 20 years. And he's currently the chair of the Department of Medicine at University of Louisville. He really is an incredible advocate for preventative medicine, as in empowering yourself, the simple changes of adopting a whole food plant-based diet, how it can massively impact every aspect of your health. Um, Yeah, we go into the fundamentals of heart health and how often heart disease can occur in people a lot younger than one might think. When we were growing up, often people had heart disease in their 40s or 50s. And nowadays, it's even he was saying it was in late teenagers it was occurring. If you're inspired and motivated by this conversation, we're starting our Happy Heart course on March the 4th. It's a four week approach of adopting a whole food plant based diet to prevent and reverse heart disease. It's food and lifestyle based and... There's live support sessions, there's workshops, and it's with a cardiologist with over 30 years experience and who is plant-based himself. So it's deeply rooted in science, four weeks to prevent and reverse heart disease starting March the 4th. You'll find details in the show notes of this podcast, or you can go to our website, thehappypair.ie, and find out more about it. Uh, Let's be honest, the medical knowledge uh, doubles every 73 days. Every 73 days. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, reading for pleasure, reading for knowledge, reading for personal growth, that's kind of like on the back shelf uh, or front shelf in this case. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, I'm hoping to get to it to the point, you know, get to the point where I can actually do that at some point. But uh, keeping up with the literature is that's a full time job. Well, so literally every two months, like just over every two months, it doubles like the actual medical oh, yeah. literature and the information doubles in terms of health and well-being. That's right. And and you can carve out your little sector like cardiology or nutrition, but it's still rapidly growing. And uh and you know, and obviously particularly in the United States, you're responsible for more than it. You're responsible for everyone else's specialty when you're seeing a patient uh you know, morally, ethically and uh if not legally, but you know, it's it's important to to be able to impact, particularly when you do something like we do, uh, which is lifestyle medicine. Uh, it affects all the organs. It can't just be a cardiologist. So those were the fun days. Yeah, well, it's it's a bit like um, like every or you know the way to to see the human body in isolation is kind of naive because it's one holistic system, and whether it's the heart or the gut or the mind, they're all intrinsically linked. Could you talk on that for hey. a sec? Um, so, you know, we, we got a full dose of that. I mean, I think cardiology sort of rejected it and people would say that anxiety causes a heart, heart uh, disease. And, you know, the person who, you know, finds out that their family member has had a car accident and, you know, was fatal and they, you know, grab their chest and fall over and die. And it's kind of like, you know, everybody had heard all that, but nobody really believed that that was a mechanism. Then many years ago, uh, there was, uh, a recognition that there is so-called stress-induced cardiomyopathy, meaning that someone tells you something horrible, and I, and I have to admit that I saw most of it when I was uh, chief of cardiology at Wayne State. You'd have four people uh, getting a government check and going to the um, casinos, and an 85-year-old lady gambles away her food and rent trying to make more money uh, through gambling, and they would literally get that stress-induced cardiomyopathy. It looks for all the world like a heart attack. It's it's a heart attack induced by the brain uh, wow. and the stress that's happening. Uh, and uh, it's got a fancy name, Takasubo cardiomyopathy. The Takasubo is, uh, if you look it up, it's actually the octopus trap that they use in Japan. And um, because that's exactly the shape of the heart after it's had that kind of damage. So wow. anyway, uh, after Takasubo came out, we kind of got to start to realize that these brain-heart connections are real. Uh, and then people started to pay attention to uh, stress in people's lives and how it can, you know, with you know things that we should have known, cortisol levels, catecholamines, that's adrenaline, uh, raise your blood pressure, uh, damage your blood vessels, more strokes, more heart attacks. And so um, now there 
have to tell you that there have been some, some people, particularly in the vegan world, who knew this the whole time, like Dean Ornish. You know, yeah. And in fact, Dean Ornish had this down to a T. You know, you stop smoking, you exercise, get yourself in a loving environment, um, good social connections, and you change to a whole food plant-based diet. And all of your you know, cardiac stuff and all your risk factors dramatically improve. Um, and, you know, he was always saying that that the mindfulness part of it and stress reduction were as important as everything else. And, and it's actually very true. Yeah, well, it's the same for gut health that, you know, I think they say that 70% of IBS is typically stress-induced. So it seems like it's it's not surprising in that sense. Um, but one, one place I'd love to, to talk to you, we were just discussing there earlier, was about um, that the biggest killer of cardiologists is heart attacks, yeah. which sounds very ironic in a sense um but not surprising also when you look at the wider population at large still and the, the number one killer it's, is well, heart it's disease. the number one killer in the u.s but not in other countries and i will wonder if you could talk about that because that seems or, or or is there a change in that over your career because you've been a cardiologist for 30 years or approximately at this stage <laughs> yeah i started academic cardiology if you include my first rotation at grady this is my 45th year what <laughs> Go well, the, well done. Acting in the cardiology. So, um, yeah, let's talk about the last part first. Uh, you know, sort of the world distribution of heart disease. Uh, it, it, number one uh, globally for a long time. Uh, then a lot of the uh, advances in treatment of heart disease uh, have improved it to the point where the survival of patients with heart disease is pretty high. So pretty much every advanced or high-income HIC, high-income country, actually has uh, heart disease fall into number two because we're so good at uh, managing it, detecting it, you know, you scan people, stress tests, stent them, bypass, everything's working. So why is there one high-income country in the world, that's the United States of America, where heart disease is still the number one killer? Um, and you can understand why outside of high-income countries, it is the number one killer in all the other countries, but only one high-income country, and that's because our risk is so high and our habits, and there's not enough folks paying attention to your podcast and changing their diet and trying to get um, uh, healthier from, um, from the inside out. And so we can do all the mopping up the floor with the most fancy mops but it's never going to be as good as turning off the faucet. That's such a good one. So, you, you said yeah. risk there. You said the risk is like, how come the risk is higher in the U.S.? Is that purely down to lifestyle based or is? Sure. Purely lifestyle. So if you, if you have a country where um, the things that people enjoy become very prominent and that's, you know, sitting watching television and uh, as, you know, I, as a former professional tennis player, I can tell you that us. Uh, Pickleball, taking over tennis courts, just grates on you because the courts are just going away. And then you realize, wait a minute, these are Americans getting out of their living room off of the couch and going and playing a sport that pretty much anyone can play as opposed to tennis. You kind of have to be an athlete to play tennis. But pickleball, everybody's doing it. So, I'm, you know, things like that uh, can change this dynamic that I've been talking about, this risk. Uh, and of course, exercise, whatever I say about exercise, you multiply it by a back factor of, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, or 10, and that's nutrition. And I'm sorry to report, uh, if you guys put my name in Google or you know the International Journal of Disease Reversal, you'll see a recent article that we published on physician nutrition. The title is uh, What's on Our Plate? Uh, and it's where we've sort of made the uh, observation with my research team that I know this is going to sound strange, but that people who were plant-based, we all knew the people who were plant-based were having less problem with COVID. question that we were asking was, if you were plant-based, did you have less problem with COVID vaccine? That is less of the you know fever, chills, all the stuff that people can get for a day or two after a vaccine. Uh, and our preliminary sort of working group, it was absolutely true. Those who were eating animals were, you know, they take a day off of work or maybe, you know, sore. The, you know, the rest of us who were plant-based, we got a sore deltoid muscle as it, and everything else, you felt perfectly fine. So we thought we would pursue this in a bunch of people who were reliable, um, that is physicians and knowledgeable. And um, 
My research uh, assistant, Michelle Ikram, had actually moved over um, because of some program issues, had moved over to Loyola, and I was at Rush. And so we did Loyola University and Rush University in Chicago, and we sent out the survey to physicians. We divided it, you know, uh, the, the typical dietary patterns. Out of 274 doctors, there was one plant-based. Wow. Was that you? And every, uh, no, I didn't take the survey because I was part of the. Of course, you know, yeah. And so, and uh, that one person out of 274, the rest were eating things that have medical literature sh demonstrating very clearly that it's increasing their death rate. That included, you know, fish, ovo lacto vegetarian, uh, you know, pesco polo vegetarian, and then the vast majority were omnivores. And it was so disturbing um, that, you know, this is why the, the leading cause of death is that we as physicians have learned how to treat heart disease and we haven't focused on prevention. At some point that has to change. And that's what, you know, I'm sort of dedicating the rest of my career to doing. And, you know, because if we can capture physicians, we can capture uh, community groups, capture people who are out in front uh, have more people on social media. Haha, -ha, thank you very much for doing this. We, we can actually change that dynamic and get people to realize that they are what they eat. And that's a, a popular Netflix. I don't know. If yeah, you it's brilliant. Yeah, really. The twin, with the twins. Yeah, that's oh, brilliant. Exactly. And, and then in terms of many people, many people can fall back with the mantra that it's genetics. You know, oh, my, my family has it. What percentage roughly does genetics account to in terms of heart disease or heart issues? We never ever thought we'd become health ambassadors. As 21-year-olds, we were meat-eating, pint-swilling, burger-munching jocks. And lo and behold, a year later, age 22, we adopted a plant-based diet, gave up alcohol, started into yoga and swimming in the sea, and that's been 20 years now. In terms of physical health, we think it starts at your feet. We've been wearing Vivo barefoot shoes for about seven years, and I love them. They're the only type of shoes I wear. I feel more myself. I feel I get more feedback from the environment. My kids wear them. Um, they got a huge different variety of ranges, and they're the only shoe I would wear. Uh, Vivo have offered you, our wonderful listeners, 15% discount when you use the code HAPPYPAIR15 at checkout. And right now, they're offering free access with every purchase to the ultimate resource for natural health, which is a course curated showcasing our human potential with some of the best and most progressive leaders in the health and wellness space. Check out the link in the show notes to find out more and avail of your discount with the code HAPPYPAIR15 at checkout. That's vivobarefoot.com, HAPPYPAIR15 for 15% off your pair of shoes. So obviously it's 100% because we're human or we're mammalian. And a very um, wonderful plant-based journal editor I think there were only two of us in the world. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that there must be some more. I just don't know them. Uh, Will, Bill, uh, William Roberts, he died uh, after, I think he's about 95 years old. He ran the American Journal of Cardiology for almost 50 years. And he used to always say that unless you have claws and fangs, you are not supposed to eat animal products, okay? Well, I actually checked up on Bill's uh, 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 assertion there. And it turns out that if you have claws and fangs and you eat animal products, your life expectancy isn't that long. Lions live about 25 years. Elephants can, and elephants can live 100 years. Uh, and so mammals that eat animals don't do as well. In fact, if you, you know, want to create a, a, a model of heart disease, all you have to do is you know, they take uh, cruelly take ab rabbits, put them in a cage and feed them animal products, and they develop heart disease. So we have this data, and yet people really don't want to change their habits. And I, I have to admit to you that when I struggle, I don't usually talk about any brand thing of anything, but uh, artificial, so I won't say which brand. I'll just say artificial intelligence, right? Um, when I, uh, once that article, What's on Our Plate, got published, it's kind of hit me that how badly we were doing at saving ourselves. Uh, and so I actually went to my nearby subscription for um, artificial intelligence, <laughs> and I asked the question, if changing to a plant-based diet can save the planet, avoid animal cruelty, reduce 
healthcare costs, reduced chronic illness, and reduced death rate, why isn't everybody doing it? And the answers it gave me actually were pretty good answers. They were like uh, affordability, education, um, you know, culture, habit, family, and peer pressure. It went on and on with all the, th the things that we face. But the underlying all of that was the fact that my preamble question is something that's not understood by most people and most physicians. They don't realize that we're spending $4 trillion on healthcare in the United States for illnesses that could be completely wiped out or at least mitigated by a whole food plant-based diet. And so that's our job to get that information out there as much as we can. So thanks for putting on a program. On the AI thing, um, I put into ChatGPT, I said, what's the best diet to reverse heart disease? And it's a whole food plant-based diet and it gave me a whole reasons why. So it's like if AI who is non-biased and doesn't have food preferences said that the best right. diet to reverse heart disease was a plant-based diet, well, then you go, well, that's kind of, you know, this is a machine telling me this. Why, why right. are cardiologists, why is there only one out of 274 doctors not plant, why aren't there more of them who are plant-based? And I know in the UK, there's a great group. There's the, you know, there's the plant-based doctors group, yep. um, which is amazing. It's a really good, we've, we met you plant -based at- Plant-based medical professionals. Yeah, plant-based medical professionals. And it's amazing. We, we met you at when you were speaking, when you were over at Wimbledon there a number of years ago. Um, and we heard you speak and it was wonderful. It really, really was. And uh, is there something similar in this, the United States where there is groups of plant-based doctors- Yes, yes, uh, there are groups, and and I have to do a shout out to. I just got back from the Australian Open, uh, where we put to got together with the doctors for nutrition over there, and uh, they I, I actually uh, gave a mini symposium on you know what's on our plate, and I said you know here's ChatGPT's ten answers, and what do you guys think? And uh, you know there was some a, a lot of thoughtful discussion, and. Um, then they wanted to do sort of a uh, a breakfast download, and we sort of brainstorming, and it hit me that uh, you're absolutely right. You have you know you have the doctors in London, uh, you have uh, many groups in the United States, but one of the things that I hadn't seen us try before was reaching out to the other people. That is, we're all talking about nutrition, but what about the animal rights people? What about uh, the planet sustainability people? Why don't we? get meetings of all of us together and see if we can't leverage each other's strengths. There should be, you know, a, a vegan person at every, you know, carb, uh, you know, methane gas <laughs> uh, polluting our system. There, we should be interdigitating, I think, and together we would be stronger. Uh, so they actually, you know, threw together that meeting um, uh, right before the women's finals. <laughs> they, uh, we had a little... Uh, online symposium that everybody was able to get on. And it's about 10 organizations and it could, they could do more, but you could do it in Ireland. We could do it in the United States. I'm hoping that everybody takes it up and sort of band together because every time, um, so I actually, uh, I had my, in March, I had my 20th vegan anniversary from, you know, 2003, where I had found out that my cholesterol was elevated, sought what to do about it and went uh, whole food plant-based at that point. Um, and there's a website that'll tell you your impact. 20 years of plant-based nutrition, it was massive numbers. I don't remember what they are, but the amount of, it wasn't just that animal lives, but the amount of water that I had saved the planet and the amount of, of, uh, of air quality improvement. Uh, I'm hoping that everyone uh, realizes it, and I, it seems to me that the answer is social media. Yeah, it's it's a, it's such a like it's such a big question there because it's like we've been the same we've been plant based for twenty years and our whole business the happy pair has been about empowering people and we use the metaphor we use the expression eat more veg because we find it's a good gateway into it rather than thou shalt become vegan we find it uh -huh. it's to attract people in via really tasty food and that's that's our yeah. business you know we've got cookbooks and recipes and cafes and farms and food products and they're all to get people to eat more veg because just like you we realize that it's you know you've dedicated your life the last since 2003 to kind of to preventing heart disease rather than actually just you know um operating on it and putting stents in or whatnot whereas you know it's 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 frustrating in one sense but um i guess it is just yeah, it, it, it is the way it is it, it really is and and you're pointing out how uh difficult it is um to get the two sides to work together that is we have a bunch of 
um, plant-based doctors who have told people not to do stents and bypasses and uh, to avoid statins, which is probably our number one drug in in, uh, in cardiology. And I joke, not a joke, that statins are have ruined the uh, Medicare system in the United States. Why? Because people aren't dead. <laughs> they kept some of people alive. So, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, what people a statin wanna... does is it helps reduce one's cholesterol or keeps it down lower yep. so that there's less. And the LDL cholesterol, it, but it also reduces inflammation. David Jenkins actually showed that whole food plant based diet, I'm throwing that in there, whole food plant based diet and a statin were, did both the same thing dropping LDL cholesterol and dropping C-reactive protein. That is the in, in, the risk outside of cholesterol is inflammation. And, and that C-reactive protein will tell you how much risk you're at, your inflammatory risk you have, and statins and a plant-based diet lower both. Why wouldn't you put them together? But instead, I have a bunch of doctors eating bad stuff, not focusing on diet, giving statins, and then I have the plant-based doctor saying, don't take statins. There, you know, if a person doesn't have disease and doesn't have risk, of course they don't need a statin. But if you, uh, and all of our guidelines, American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guidelines, say lifestyle first for prevention, and then you use statins if it's not working for whatever reason. And that's the part to answer your question. That's the part. How much of it's genetic? It's 100% because we're all human. Uh, we're all ma mammals, and uh, heart disease will be induced if we eat those things. Now, but what you're really asking me is, how much is unavoidable? And, you know, uh, the UK has done a better job than the United States. Everybody says that familial hyperlipidemia, which is the one that we are, are fear, where there's a handful of genes that will code for extremely high LDL cholesterol. Uh, triglycerides on occasion, but LDL cholesterol. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the cascade testing that they do in the UK. It's actually highly successful. Last time I was there, Scotland was the one that was kind of uh, dragging their feet. But every pediatrician is supposed to, uh, during infancy, during those well baby visits, supposed to check the cholesterol. Wow. And finding those ele with elevated cholesterol in infancy or, or early childhood, wow. they can actually go back and find the parents who were in their 20s and 30s, sometimes 40s, and you can find the grandparents. And you can retro-generationally uh, find every single person in the UK who has that gene. Wow. Um, so that's a, a program that we really need in the United States. And I guess because it's somewhere between 1 in uh, 250 uh, to 1 in 500 that have familial hyperlipidemia and you know, if you have one of the genes, you get premature heart disease in your 40s or 50s. If you have two of the genes, you're getting it in your 20s or 30s. And so uh, there is a genetic component that can lead to early heart disease, regardless of what you do with diet. Uh, not completely regardless, but uh, because even the people with familial hyperlipidemia, that FH gene, can improve with diet, but recognizing that they have it, that's the most important thing. And, and you know, as close as we come to the United States is the American Academy of Pediatrists asking people at, at a lot, to do a cholesterol test at adolescence. We're not there where, where the UK is yet. Wow, yeah. Because I guess, like, the fact that uh, heart disease builds over our lifetime, starting with, say, as you said, those pediatric tests where they could show that young kids were born with, with high cholesterol levels. Like it was only through the Vietnam War and the Korean War when they showed with, you know, dead veterans that they, young 20-year-olds had the buildup of plaque and heart disease in their arteries as 20-year-olds. Whereas most of us, when we think of heart disease, we think, oh, well, it's 50, it's 60, it's 70-year-olds. That's when heart disease happens. But really it builds over a lifestyle, over a lifetime um, because of one's habits and one's health habits. And I know yourself as a tennis player, like if you play lots of tennis, there's supposedly a risk, you know, you, you uh, tennis players on average live something like five years longer because the correlation between moving your body and typically being slim and adopting healthy habits typically lives that you live longer and less likely to die from heart disease. And I wonder if you could talk about the lifestyle component, which is, that's a massive question in terms of heart disease, but for everyone listening who's going, okay, well, heart disease, like it's, it's, it's something which I care about. Like what would be your kind of top tips for anyone in terms of heart disease and reducing the risk or reversing it? 
So, so you said so many things that I need to respond yeah, sorry, to. First yeah. of all, British, British Medical Journal, I'm not going to short shift, short shrift tennis or, or racket sports. British Medical Journal a few years ago said it was a 17 year life expectancy difference. Wow. Now, as 17 a, years. 17 for tennis, years. For those yeah. who play tennis and those who don't. For tennis. Uh, and plant based diet is only supposed to be 15, but hopefully they're additive. Okay. And so, You're getting 30 years. 15. There you go. Now, interesting part about that is that. I, you know, I'm looking at the, the data carefully. I don't see how there's not confounded. That is, uh, just like the data that says kids raised vegan have a 16 point higher IQ. Well, it's probably because they have smarter parents. Uh, for, te for tennis players uh, to play your entire life and not get frustrated and give up or put it on the back burner, you have to be a good player. You have to enjoy it. You have to have more endorphins than frustration from it. And to do that, you have to be a strategic thinker. You actually have to have decent economics. Uh, there, so there's so many other factors. But I think you did point out the, the important one that, you know, to play successfully, you have to be in a fit and you have to train. I, can, I don't train by playing tennis. I train for playing tennis. Uh, so which is a higher burden if if you want to be successful. So this is really complicated. But then you also mentioned um, switching quickly. You mentioned uh, early plaque, and the mantra that we're all supposed to be adopting, which I I was really hoping that everyone in the world would understand this about heart disease, is lifelong exposure to LDL cholesterol. That is, what is the area under the the curve? How high is it, and how long have you had it? And so that's really what you're talking about. And uh, yes, those uh, uh, unfortunate war casualties showing 18-year-olds with plaque has now been extended in the United States to three-year-olds and eight-year-olds type 2 diabetes. Uh, that was so called, when I was in school, that was adult-onset diabetes. They had to change the name uh, because uh, kids are getting it. And, that's be, and, and then change the name of the disease. It's not just diabetes, it's diabetes uh, because of the obesity epidemic. And so it's all about nutrition. And I'm hoping that uh, we will go forward. So so what do I recommend for everybody? Um, whole food plant-based diet. And um, the, the hardest part uh, is, if I could sort of go tangential just a hair, uh, is making sure that it's a healthy diet. Uh, I'm actually still in the middle of uh, the analysis, I think we're shutting down the database uh, all over the world. Every place that I've gone, whether it's tennis or lecturing, um, I use one of those apps that tell me where there are plant-based restaurants near my phone. I'd Happy love cow. to say the name. I said, oh, I wasn't going to, I don't say friend oh, names. <laughs> oh, well, that's a free resource. It's a great resource. Uh, it is a good indeed, one. Indeed, indeed. Um, and so... Um, as it turns out, um, I do this wherever I go, and um, I have try my best, and I'm sure you guys are, are into this, uh, to evaluate the, the healthiness of the food. Because just because it's plant-based uh, doesn't mean it's good. And I know so many of my plant and sustainabilities and my animal rights colleagues they really like the vegan ice cream and the vegan beignets and the re vegan red cupcake, re uh, red velvet cupcakes. And I say, you know, those are really good for the planet because refined grains increase mortality. So it's good for the planet because it gets rid of humans. Yeah. <laughs> but, Which ultimately uh, means more kind of fossil fuels at some stage. You know. <laughs> so what? So what, so getting uh, so so far the preliminary analysis uh, of our data is about. No, over 360 restaurants, about half are omnivore restaurants that claim to have vegan vegetarian options, and the other half are vegan vegetarian restaurants. And the vegan vegetarian restaurants do offer a slightly healthier, um, a more numerous healthier uh, entrees, but they're all replete with white rice, uh, white flour, and the refined grains, according to the Pure Trial, and Celine Youssef has been doing these trials all over the all over the world, and uh, loads of publications. And one of his publications said that saturated fat was better than carbohydrates. Well, well, why is that, Celine? I'm telling you why. It's because you included refined grains. Refined grains are set up a fuel of fire. They raise your LDL cholesterol. 
they may be worse than eating animals. It's certainly worse than eating saturated fat coming from animals. And so uh, Salim took me seriously when, and you'll see another publication um, from his group, pure trial group saying, whoa, it's refined grains. Whole grains are good, refined grains not good. Wow. Hard to get that message out. I guess having worked in food system ourselves, we just see the prevalence and how disconnected we all are. There was a time when, you know, you knew where your potatoes came from. You knew you knew the grower. We were very connected. We were much more agrarian focused. And as society has become increasingly more complex, our foods are coming from further and further and further away. And, you know, there's just this huge disconnect. And as a result, we don't know our food. And I was also going to add to that. There's like, as like we've had a, a cafe restaurant for 20 years and it's the constant balance between health and uh, taste. And you're constantly finding the right balance because if you tip off too healthy, your customers who are omnivores who are used to the standard diet don't aren't attracted into it. So you have to find this balance between as healthy as you can while also tasting really good. And on the menu, you have to kind of have a smattering of, you know, healthy, really healthy, middle healthy and entry into the, you know, movement or whatnot. So it's, it, 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 it yeah. You say that very well. And I, you know, this was not going to be, I wasn't going to publish it um, because I thought it was too sensitive, but uh, I did notice that, you know, when I, I used to call them, uh, you know, my uh, vegan runs, you know, trying to preserve my, uh, this was before I got the hip replacement, uh, tennis injury uh, that uh, Andy Murray ended up with. Once he, when he got it, I said, oh, and he comes back. Then I said, I'm, I'm getting that surgery. And it, so, so I'm playing full tilt as if nothing ever happened. But before that, I would have to limit my runs to about three miles. So uh, I would go from the hotel where, you know, where, you know, I'm in Jakarta or, or Panama City, anything within 1.5 miles so I could run there, get the food, and then come back and it'd be less than three miles. Um, those restaurants, when I started listing them, because I had lists of every place I had gone, the number of plant-based restaurants that closed was tremendously high. And so I know what you're saying. That is, if you are trying to feed people completely uh, healthy, healthily, and the people are not interested in being completely healthy, it's hard to do that as a business. So kudos to you for doing this for 20 years mm. and keeping it as healthy as you can. Yeah, not yeah. easy. Yeah, like, yeah. But but I guess it's like that's that's the challenge. Like it really is because you're all, you're you're up. It almost feels like you're we're up against the machine because. You know, we produce a lot of products. We have 80 products like pestos and granolas and, you know, snack bars, which are available in supermarkets in Ireland. And it's the challenge because you're competing with a lot of cheaper foods, which are made of refined flour, refined sugar, refined oils in various different proportions, which have very long shelf lives. And they kind of tend to be quite addictive and they release dopamine in the brain, but they're not good yep. for people's health. So it's 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 almost like it'd be better if you didn't know this stuff because then you could just, your business could, is more likely to be, you know, a smash hit. But once you know the ethics, it's hard. To, and, and you know, the kind of consequences if we're producing food that's not healthy, we're not ultimately helping people at large. And as a business, you want to try to do it all to run a business that's profitable, that's good for the planet, that's good for people's health. And it's a nice place to work. And that's a challenge in today's um, field of capitalism, which is um, not really set up for that. Well, I'm glad you're taking on that challenge and uh, uh, hoping that you'll continue to be successful because it, it really is uh, a correlation between uh, how unhealthy you are and how much money you can make. Yeah. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah. One thing I want to go straight into in, in terms of cardiology, Kim, um, is cholesterol. Um, many people are, there can be misguided awareness on cholesterol. Like cholesterol is a massive predicator. Once one has elevated cholesterol, they're increasing the risk of cardio cardiovascular disease significantly. And typically it's LDL, isn't it? HDL is the deemed the healthier one or less important nowadays. That was that was before Can Hart and the Copenhagen trials showed that we had it wrong for 60 years. High HDL increases death rate and in, um and heart attacks. And to, to go back and tell all the people who I had told, oh, you're protected because you have an HDL of a hundred. You got to let them know that's that's just not true anymore. It never was true. So uh, HDL is a U-shaped curve. If it's really low, we were right about that. That's bad for you. Um, but two more points. If it's really high, that's bad, just as bad for you. And the really important one after torcetropib, anisetropib, dalcetropib, niacin, um, uh, fibrates, I just go on and on with drugs where we try to increase HDL and they either did no good 
or a slight increase in death rate, and we didn't catch on. And so I, I hope everyone's heard it by now because the Copenhagen and Anhart trials came out, out of, you know, like three years ago, um, that HDL is not really good for you. So what do you do about HDL? Um, if it's really low, if you're doing saturated fat and no exercise, you know, you probably ought to stop doing those things. Okay. <laughs> Uh, because sometimes it's a marker for those that kind of thing. But uh, HDL itself, we probably shouldn't spend a lot of time talking about it. LDL, on the other hand, you have those LDL deniers out there, and they're looking at this massive amount of data that says that they're wrong. So um, uh, LDL is really important, and you can get plaque to go away by removing LDL by any means necessary. We're talking hook you up to you know, intravenously and do a plasmapheresis, which is a, a treatment that you could do for um, uh, the people with familial hyperlipidemia that I was talking about before. Yeah. Uh, but statins, injectables, the this PCSK9 molecule, uh, it is an observation many years ago that there, some people have an LDL of seven or ten uh, when you know normal. Uh, the normal people are running around about 90 or 100. Um, and that, you know, we used to think that if your LDL was less than 25, your brain wouldn't work. Well, it turns out that's not true. Um, you know, babies have an LDL of 10. You know, New Zealand white rabbits have an LDL of 10. People grow fine without a lot of extra cholesterol in their bloodstream. But it turns out that um, the, the that low cholesterol can actually pull plaque out of your arteries. And so that PCSK9 molecule, you find some people with an LDL of 7 or 10 or 14 because that one molecule is not working. And so that what they now try to do is simulate that. And we have several medications that are injectable that can stop that molecule from working, and they dramatically lower LDL cholesterol. Uh, what does that molecule do, by the way? Nobody wants to do lipid, lipidology 101 on a podcast, but there is a molecule called PCSK9 that tells your LDL receptors to quit and recycles them. And if you don't have that molecule, the LDL receptors just keep taking the, the LDL out of the bloodstream. And that's a, a, a big advantage to those people genetically who, have, who are mutants. Uh, and anyone who takes one of these drugs that can stop that little molecule from working. Um, so we and but what we've learned over the time is that uh, the PCSK9 inhibitors have data. The statins, two of them, only two of them, uh, the strongest ones, uh, resuvastatin and atorvastatin. The Esselstyn diet, yeah. uh, whole food plant based diet, no oil, and the Ornish diet. Uh, whole food plant-based diet. He had, uh, if, from his first trials, he had some low-fat dairy, but it, that, that's gone now. All five of those will actually reduce plaque because they get the LDL down so low. And so people saying that LDL is not cause, uh, causing heart disease, I mean, obviously, getting plaque to go away is one thing, but as plaque goes down, as LDL goes down, events go down. So they really are related, and I'm hoping that everyone will recognize how important that is. But it's not the only thing. The other candidates are um, TMAO, this is Cleveland Clinic talking, the trimethylamine N-oxide, which dramatically goes down when you stop eating red meat. Animal protein is dangerous, but different animal proteins are, are different. Eggs would be you know, pretty decent animal protein if it was, didn't have that yellow middle, which was so full of cholesterol. Okay. But red meat, um, giving you, you know, creatine, beta, uh, betaine, phosphatidylcholine, and choline, turns out those fancy sounding chemicals get into your GI tract. And what's in your GI tract when you're eating red meat? People don't realize that when they're eating red meat that they're eating actual decaying flesh. Wow. Hard to admit that you're actually eating the decaying carcass and that that's decaying because they're bacteria in it that are making the meat decay, and then they populate your gut. And so vegans have a completely different gut population of bacteria called the microbiome. And the, the vegan microbiome decreases not just heart disease, but all kinds of neurologic disease. And you mentioned inflammatory bowel disease, improves that. 
uh, very few things that are not affected. And one of the ways it affects it is making this TMAO or trimethylamine, which then your liver converts to, tri to uh, TMAO. And, you know, Cleveland Clinic might not be right that that causes everything, but it's sure at least as a marker for all kinds of bad stuff. And uh, people end up with less, the less of that you have in your bloodstream, the less heart attack, stroke, death, diabetes, and renal failure. If it wasn't for those five things, you could have all the TMAO you, you want. Um, uh, and then uh, you have to shout out to Harvard uh, with Paul Ritker talking about inflammatory risk. And uh, we talked about uh, C-reactive protein because it is dramatically improved by uh, a whole food plant-based diet, as I mentioned. Um, but people don't realize it. If you just treat your LDL and you leave your inflammatory risk still there, people don't do well. And the heart attack rate goes up by more than double if you lower the LDL, but the inflammatory risk is still there. And so, um, so it's not all LDL. And people who say, you know, that... We're wrong about LDL being the culprit. Uh, the literature does not agree with that, but they are making a point that there are other things, and I would point to the, at least those two. So, out of you know, what do we do? Uh, the the one thing there's only one thing that lowers TMAO, LDL, and C-reactor protein, and that's a whole food plant based diet. Wow. So, so really, just just to recap, what you said there is HDL. Now it's a risk factor, same as LDL. You know, um, C-reactive protein is a, a inflammation, and then you talked about TMAO, and those are all some of the major kind of um, risk factors for heart disease. And a whole food plant based diet is number one in our arsenal in, in terms of reversing them. Is that the case? Reversing them, preventing it, absolutely. Wow. And a whole food plant-based diet in our experience can be cheaper than a standard diet in that you're kind of eating peasant food, really, you know, you're eating vegetables and beans and legumes and whole grains. And it's, it's uh, that that's the reality rather than, it's just a habit. It's just that our society is not set up for it. And people have to learn to cook, which almost seems like it's a- An old fashioned thing to an do. An old fashioned thing to do, to cook. Oh my God. We can reheat <laughs> stuff and we can cook basic, simple things, but to arm people with the capacity to cook healthy whole foods you've got to like it starts in the kitchen really so i wonder like you've been at this for 45 years you've been a cardiologist for 45 years you've been plant-based for 23 years like what do you see is how do we how do we change this like you're coming towards the you know the the later years in your career and you must be going where are the big levers like where like if if you in cardiology you know you, you're at the top of your field within it and you see there's cardiologists, there isn't that many cardiologists that are plant-based. And you've got this expression, which is all over the internet. There's two types of cardiologists. There's those who are vegan and there's those who haven't read the literature yet. So like, where do you see as the big massive levers in terms of trying to make people move more in this direction? Well, I'd like to say that, you know, there's going to be some cataclysmic event. It probably would be the planet. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, having studies I believe that medical literature can save lives. And, you know, if you look at the history uh, of, uh, you know, epidemics, and I actually got into this because of healthcare disparities, looking at uh, African-Americans in the United States having so much more heart disease than, the, than other populations. Uh, and I started looking at other times when there were healthcare disparities. And guess what? It turns out that uh, in the uh, 18th century, 1700s, there was smallpox, and smallpox was so much worse in the black population uh, than it was uh, in the whites. But everybody was dying. It's just that it was worse. And it turns out that there was an African slave in Boston uh, who, when he was a kid, he had seen a smallpox uh, outbreak and saw that they uh, would take some of the pustules and inject them into people who hadn't gotten yet sick yet. And a few of those would get sick and die, but most of them became completely immune to the disease. The, so vaccination inoculation. And it took many, many years for that to take over once he started that. But once he did, smallpox was essentially eliminated. And uh, it, you know, waxing and waning until we had really good vaccines. Uh, it happened again with a, a lot of blacks dying in Panama. And if you know the, we yeah, can spend a lot of time talking about it, but very quickly, the French were really trying to connect, you know, 
Chinese goods to Europe without having to go around South America. And that's the Panama Canal. And they you know, scoped out exactly where it should be done and how it should be done and started excavating. And then there's water. And guess what? A lot of uh, ex, this is 1890s, a lot of uh, uh, Western Hemisphere ex-slaves came to try to you know, feed their families. And the French were paying well. It, with, everything was going good until the dying started. And the dying was because all that standing water led to um, mosquitoes, mm. and uh, they carried yellow fever. And so uh, when so, so the French gave up. By the way, um, meanwhile, 1895, the United States was like a war with Spain, where more soldiers died from yellow fever than they did from shooting each other. And wow. so the United States Army figured this thing out. And that's why we went back 10 years later and did the Panama Canal um, without people dying. They figured out mosquito abatement. So anyway, this goes on and on through history. Loads of healthcare disparities. It doesn't have to be black, white. It could be rich, poor. Loads of healthcare disparities. How do you fix it? You come up with a solution, you promulgate that solution, and you make sure that it gets applied. So now we have heart disease that we know exactly how it happens. We know how to treat it, okay? But we know exactly how it happens, and it's really, really preventable. So how long does it take before we have the inoculation or the polio vaccine, or how long is it going to take? Um, it can take a while. And with uh, you know social media and with uh, you know medical publications, I think we have a chance. Uh, so uh, that was the longest story ever to say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Having a podcast and talking about this, and hopefully one person will send it to the next, and folks will uh, start to understand that they're in control. And you know, when I said at, at uh, when I took over as president of the American College of Cardiology, I'm giving my introduction speech, and I was very honest. I said, you know, we're in a specialty that should be eliminated the next couple of generations. And I'm hoping that, it, uh, that it's not going to take, you know, 40, 50 years uh, from, from the time I said that in 2015. I'm hoping that it's going to happen sooner because of things like artificial intelligence. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, why did uh, ChatGPT, since you used the term, uh, uh, why did it come up with that answer? Because it's a large language model that actually read all the literature all of a sudden and answered the question. And there is no question. And anyone who, uh, so what? what's basically happening is that statement that was so controversial. That those, there are those who read the data and haven't figured out how to apply it to themselves and their patients. So I, if I had to make that statement again, I would say there's a, you know, we've got to leave room for people who are just struggling uh, to make that change. But, you know, hopefully that'll happen. Uh, hopefully it won't take 50 years. Yeah. yeah. Amazing that you can actually hope that your field will one day become redundant due to people becoming healthier. And literally, that, or maybe, that, uh, well, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't become redundant because we're all dead. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, because that seems like at the moment, that seems like more of a probability that we become extinct, you know, than we, you know, yeah. just at the moment. But maybe we're at the halfway point of the movie and we haven't reached the climax where we're all going to save the world and, you know, maybe become more conscious of our food choices and how they impact our own health and the planet and the animal right. welfare. Well, and, you know, I know this is not probably the show to talk about it, but uh, I have become more sensitive to, you know, animal rights issues and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, take be kinder to sentient beings, and you know, growing them in places that uh, um, produce a lot of um, you know greenhouse gases is, that can't be the solution. And you know, we we do have to take care of uh, things other than just human health. But if if we could partner with everybody to try to get uh, uh, the the planet and the animals taken care of. Then uh, you know we'll, I'm looking forward to cardiology in involuting. Uh, there still be some cardiology. There's uh, people are born with rhythm disturbances, uh, but I would I would think it's probably somewhere around five or ten percent of what we do now. Um, wow. The rest be gone. Amazing. And one thing I was thinking of there in terms of like you've got a large faculty at Rush University. How have you like? Do you try to 
you know, inspire some of that faculty to become more plant-based or the more plant-curious cardiologists on your faculty or... How does that? Or fare? is there a lot of opposition going? Oh, Kim and his vegetables. Kim and his because I know I remember you saying when you first became the president of the American College of Cardiology, you were the American president, and you know you, it was the first time it was going to be a black president. What a big deal! <laughs> but you were labelled as the first vegan card, you know, head of the American Cardi- Center for Cardiology rather than the black one. So it was because That's that right. was more of a deal to be vegan than black. Indeed, uh, but uh, and you're absolutely right. And when I was at Rush, so I've been gone from Rush for almost two years now. Okay, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, I'm actually uh, moved from cardiology to uh, chair of medicine. Wow! And so uh, I have a wonderful cardiology division. It's you know it's uh, uh, very productive, uh, very prevention minded, which is tremendous. Uh, and I think the I, I have more plant-based physicians here at University of Louisville than I did at Rush. And, you know, Rush was wonderful, um, high-quality clinical care for anybody who's in that area. Um, prevention was not as big on the radar as clinical quality. And that's just, that's not a criticism. That's what Rush is good at. And so, you know, you'd have people at fancy other universities, but if their parent got sick, they took them to Rush. <laughs> okay. So that's that's what it's for. Um, but that's that's management, and um, you know, you know, uh, making sure that people are get the best outcome that they can. That's what that place was for. Uh, as opposed to Louisville, it, the University of Louisville really was affected. I think, becoming from the outside, um, every, everybody heard the name George Floyd, and most heard uh, Breonna Taylor. There's uh, tragic things that happened, you know, early on during COVID. Well, Brianna Taylor was a University of Louisville um, nursing assistant, and that um, you know, uh, police-related tragedy really galvanized uh, the community, but also the university. And the president at the time, President Bundapali, actually went public saying they wanted to be the anti-racist university for the uh, community, uh, for the country, um, and so. Here I come a couple years later when they're asking for a new chair, and I, you know, didn't have all that much design. I loved being a chief of cardiology, but in talking to them, it became clear that what I wanted to do was health equity. As I talked a lot about that, from smallpox to polio to heart disease, um, and prevention, and they were really interested in that because they thought that that is the anti-racist thing to do is to try to uh, relieve the burden of disease in the community that we have. And and I have to tell you that Louisville is a, a little bit different than Chicago and Detroit. There's poverty and, uh, and on one side of the city more than the other. It's less racial than it is economic. So we're actually, our health equity screenings, pe- uh, screening for heart disease, risk factors, all of that, the stuff that we do down here, early detection, get people in, uh, get people to help us pay for their care, uh, get the state to help us, which they really do. Um, it's a it's a very different environment. And yes, uh, we have a, a chapter of Walk with the Doc, uh, where people can come and just do exercise and get advice just walking in a park. And, and yes, we do uh, screenings for everywhere. If you have a Juneteenth celebration with 2,000 people in a park, we're going to be there with our booths to check their cholesterol and their blood pressure and tell them what their 10-year risk is uh, from the little calculator. Uh, so a lot more uh, community activities and a lot more interest in prevention than any place I've been in the past. So uh, it's good. Uh, shout out to, you know, people know about Louisville Cardinals because of like basketball and and now football. No, this is really a place where there's a caring for uh, the community uh, that's unmatched around the country. That's very, very encouraging to hear. Really, really is. And okay, final question is just in terms of that you said there's a bigger risk factor in terms of, you know, black Americans versus white Americans in terms of heart disease. And is that like, obviously there is, there's an equity thing in terms of um, money and finances and resources and all this type of thing. Is there a genetic predisposition or is it just purely down to lifestyle and economic prosperity or access to resources? Or what is your understanding of that? 
a lot of understanding of it. And the only genetic thing you could argue, and you, people have argued that there's more hypertension in the black community uh, because of salt sensitivity being, uh, uh, us all being descendants of people who were brought here in the slave boats with very little access to water. And those who were, who did not dehydrate and die became our gene pool. That's been argued back and forth. But uh, are African-Americans seem to be more salt sensitive? You could argue that we are. Okay, fine. Uh, but nobody, white or black or any or Asian, should be doing a lot of sodium. Okay? And so uh, if you leave that little genetic thing out, it's a lot of habit and culture. There's a wonderful cardiologist, African-American, um, Columbus Batiste. He's over at Kaiser. I think he's running the cardiovascular service line. You've probably heard of him. And yeah, yeah, heard yeah, of yeah. his show. Oh, exactly. He's got a show called The Slave Food. So what, what that's about is that, you know, it sounds terrible, but the fact of the matter is uh, the African-American slaves would subsist on whatever was being thrown out. So organ meats, things that the people in the big house did not actually want to eat. And so the going whole hog meant that you would eat all different parts of the pig and they became sort of African-American, you know, delights and specialties and figuring out how to cook, you know, chitlins, which is basically, you know, the, the small bowel, uh, as a, an example, you know, fat back and, and neck bones and the like. And so this was called out years ago by University of Alabama, Birmingham in the regards study showing that all of the risk and the mortality of the American diet is a whole lot is magnified by the African-American or soul food um, way of eating. That's more organ meats, uh, more uh, sugar sweetened beverages. Yams are great. Candied yams where you put a bunch of sugar in it, not so great. And so we've, we have had data for quite a while that our risk has to do with our diet. And when African-Americans do a whole food plant-based diet, that risk is lifted and that's what we're hoping to do. But it's wow. not just that, you know, and it, you know, I'm gonna say it's, it's not just heart disease and it's not just African-American. Uh, if you look, now that I'm in Kentucky and I have a little bit broader knowledge, Eastern Kentucky, the so-called uh, Appalachia, we all, uh, pronounced it wrong, calling it Appalachia. <laughs> Those uh, uh, Appalachian or Appalachians, whites, have higher degrees of heart disease than blacks do. And it's the same dietary patterns and the same kind of uh, lack of health care, uh, access, and uh, lack of prevention. And so I, what I've learned by moving out of the south side of Chicago and west side of Chicago and inner city Detroit what I've learned is that a lot of this is what you were saying. It's economic. It's not just racial. It's not genetic. It's economic. Uh, and we need to do better as a country in making sure that people who are underserved are, you know, distinguishing underserved and undeserved okay, is something that we don't do well enough. Okay. And if we get um, our screening programs and detect uh, who's got uh, coronary heart disease and get them in and get them managed and get their lifestyle changed, we can really make a difference. Um, you know, uh, I would say that uh, the, the last comment that when I, I said it's not just blacks and it's not just uh, heart disease, one of the biggest issues for the heart is when the kidneys go bad. So I've had to become a kind of a cardionephrologist. And the recognition is, uh, is just daunting that African-Americans are 12% of the population, but 35% of the dialysis patients. And if anyone would go to their, I, I don't know brand name, so any go to their search engine and put in red meat dialysis, you will see this massive literature come up saying that all of the chronic kidney disease and progression to end-stage renal disease that needs dialysis is due to animal protein. And asking everyone who, had to, who is treating people who have chronic kidney disease when it's stage two, before it gets to stage five, to put them on a plant-based diet. And the number of nephrologists outside of University of Louisville and University of San Diego, or, or California, San Diego, very few people very few kidney doctors are paying attention to the whole food plant-based solution for their patients. Uh, so we need 
we need a lot more uh, of the data getting out to people. And it's not just cardiologists uh, who are, you know, vegan or not reading the data. It's now nephrology, it's neurology, it's a massive amount of medical specialties. There are very few diseases you can look up and say, okay, I've got this disease. What happens with a vegan diet? And everything from lupus to anxiety and depression, all of them have a literature for whole food plant-based diet making it better. It sounds like we need in, in the medical team, we need a lot more people who can support people in making these shifts because it's it's a whole lifestyle and behavioral change thing but it's to also change a whole, whole societal change it needs to be like government leds it needs to be supported it needs to be food systems like but, but and maybe, certain companies maybe, are given are taxed because they're selling unhealthy foods certain ones that are like it's it's a full system change if if we're going to celebrate human health as opposed to profit you got me there uh, so that's the, yeah. I, I would tell you that uh um the current uh, administrator in the White House put it together a, uh, a nutrition, health, and hunger conference, uh, September of 2022. First time in over 50 years, Richard Nixon had done it um, in the late 60s. And the fact of the matter is that um, a lot of us were asked to give recommendations, and I was making those kind of recommendations. And to hear uh, the president get up and say most of the things that I was saying, uh, along with recommendations of a lot of other people, was was really great. The question is, can you really do it? So some of those things, so the one that I was we published on, uh, uh, if you Google my name and the, the article title is Marketing Mortality, showing television commercials with unhealthy food particularly to children and to minorities because our uh, poorer population tends to watch more television than the people who are making a lot of money working. It turns out that uh, the unhealthiness of the food is actually you know, changing the buying habits and the eating habits of the population. So why not change that? We did it for cigarettes. Uh, you can't have cigarette advertisement on television. Um, but that was the one that no one touched. <laughs> but all the rest of them, like uh, we have a uh, food uh, program for the poor called the SNAP, uh, and increasing the amount of healthy food that you can buy with SNAP privileges. That's great. How about um, labeling red, yellow, and green in the grocery store? That is, if processed meat is a World Health Organization Group 1 carcinogen, there ought to be a label on that saying, this is red. If you want to eat it, you can, but you probably should be doing this once or twice a year. Uh, and then there's yellow stuff, which has got, maybe it's not optimal, but it's not immediately harmful. And then you've got green, because this is healthy. This will actually make your diseases get better, and et cetera. That's been tried in a few countries, uh, never in UK or Ireland, uh, and not in the United States that I've seen. Um, I'm hoping uh, that that one actually gets executed, even if it's just a pilot program, because when it was done in Austria and done in France, it changed behavior. And we could make people healthy just by labeling the food. The FDA wants to label the food better, uh, and they're getting a lot of pushback. Um, but talking to Rob Califf about this, he wants to flip the uh, sodium content, saturated fat, cholesterol content to the front instead of being on the back. Um, and that would have uh, some uh, a big help. I, I, I was amazed even in terms of label reading because label reading is such an important part of this. And in the in Europe, it's it's a bit easier to read labels, but in the US, it's very confusing in terms of pack size and nutritional data per pack size. And it's five servings in the pack. Like it was just it wasn't set up for the consumer to understand is this a healthy product or not. It was set up to kind of almost be confusing. Right. Yeah. yeah it's. Yeah, if the, and and the uh, the more unhealthy you are, uh, the more sodium you have. You want to make that portion size really small, knowing that people are going to eat the whole bag. <laughs> but but uh, if you make the portion size small, then it looks reasonable. And I guess that's marketing. But that's you know the 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 healthfulness of marketing uh, is something that's sorely lacking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We've covered it all here today. 
We really have. You are, as well as being a huge inspiration, it's been absolutely You're gorgeous to talk you really to you. Are. You're a beautiful, you have a lovely presence about you. It was really nice to, uh-huh. to, to, I felt like I was really hanging out with you. It was lovely. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Well, I appreciate you having me and hopefully uh, you'll continue doing what you're doing and, you know, get the larger following and get everyone to uh, really uh, change and just think through the connection between nutrition and health. Uh, we're all going to be better off. Yeah, you're wonderful, Kim. I look forward to seeing you again at some stage when you're over at some tennis event. Okay, absolutely. Hoping to, uh, haven't haven't uh, made any Wimbledon plans yet, but uh, definitely uh uh, looking forward to the next event. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Mel, for your time, thanks, Kim. You're Kim. wonderful. Thanks a million. Keep flying the flag. All right. Absolutely. All the best. Thanks Have a great again. day. Bye. 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 All the best. Cheers. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. While we have you, once a week, we write a newsletter. It's called Happier. It's got simple, tried and tested practices to make your life better. We include recipes and practices that you can apply on a daily basis to make your life happier. We've had lots of people say before that it's really helped make their life better. So you can sign up on the happypairs.ie, our weekly newsletter called Happier.